hearing, uh, of course, a lot about police reform. And I know today um, and over the weekend, a big topic of conversation has been defunding the police. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next 30 minutes until eight o'clock. Um, if you're sick of talking about it, I promise we've got other things coming up. We've got a, a stress expert that's going to be joining us. We have an award winning author from Libertyville, Illinois, a fascinating story of um, as she was starting to research her family history, you know, the genealogy. And I know all of us are sort of doing those um, genealogy kits right now, trying to figure out more about her family. She discovered a big family secret in her life. And that's also coming up. Um, But if you're not tired of talking about it and want to join the conversation, of course, your phone calls are always welcome. 312-981-7200. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about defunding the police and police reform in the next 30 minutes, sort of unpacking what that means. I know that it can sound super radical and downright frightening, honestly. Um, but we're going to unpack that with uh, a Washington Post reporter who's been covering it nationally coming up. But right now joining us, we're so lucky to have with us um, Michael Tabman. He is a he's a national speaker. He's also an author. Um, he is a retired FBI agent, but he was also a police officer and a hostage negotiator. And we're just thrilled to have you with us, Michael. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh my goodness, did I describe your bio properly? You've done so many things. <laughs> Good enough for me, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I'm sure, um, obviously, you have been keeping up with everything that's happening in the country, and I just kind of wanted to get your generalized thoughts. I know that um, defunding the police can mean various things. I mean, it can literally mean um, to some people getting rid of the police altogether, but it seems to a majority of people mean sort of reallocating um, resources and 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 lowering the funding that's sent to police. What do you think about that? Right. I don't think anyone can seriously consider defunding in the sense of what the word means, which is just cutting off funds Mm -hmm. and, in essence, dismantling the police department. I think the terminology is a response, an emotional response, born of angst and anxiety over what we're seeing unfold before our eyes. And it's an emotional term that I think is going to evoke a lot of uh, response. But as you said, I don't think it's going to actually be that drastic in terms of eliminating police departments. So if a a jurisdiction, a city or county wants to reallocate funds that could be used more effectively or more more efficiently in another activity or another function, well, that's sound fiscal policy. But if they're going to cut off money to the police department as a form of punishment, Mm-hmm. that will backfire and that will fail. That's a good point. Um, I didn't even think about it in those terms. Um, do you think that there's sound reasoning? I mean, you are somebody, you're a retired FBI agent. I mean, you're, we're on a police force. You were a hostage negotiator. Do you think that there's a sound reasoning behind saying, hey, we need to look at how we're spending our budgets and how much money we're spending on, on our police departments? I think it's fair to look at that, but I I don't think the focus should be on money. We're going to defund because, again, to me, it sounds more like, uh, you know, we're giving you a spanking. We're going to take away your money. I think the concept of police reform would be much more responsive to the problems we're having now. And that is change the police culture, because certainly I know from my years in law enforcement, the uh, reputation of being tough and being able to stand up to people and knowing you know, how to kind of push the envelope is, is, is kind of within that culture. It's sort of respected. Uh, we want to move away from that. 
We want to get to more community policing, which police departments have done throughout the country. We need to get back to that. And that's going to come in through effective leadership and guidance at the very top levels of our government and the police department itself. Speaking with national speaker and author and uh, former FBI agent and police officer, Michael Tabman. Michael, we've heard a lot about community policing. It's been something that's, you know, been attempted for so long. What? What's the problem? Why hasn't it um, manifested itself in a way that, uh, you know, and copied nationally in a way that's successful? Right. You know, it's funny, not really in a humorous way. I think back when I was a police officer in Fairfax County, Virginia, which just today I saw a tape of a Fairfax County officer uh, abusing the use of the taser, at least so it appeared, and uh, he was charged. It was very disheartening to me to see that because we had a reputation for professionalism, nationwide reputation. But I remember once in a while when asked to do the community policing was to get out of the car and walk around the neighborhood. And I did that, and people come up and say, what's wrong? Why are you out of the car? Why are you walking around? And it made them more nervous sometimes mm-hmm. than just seeing that off patrol. Uh, I think we have to remember police are viewed in this authoritarian role. Uh, people see them. They don't see them as uh, some of their friendly purposes. Most interactions uh, people can have with the police are limited to someone being in trouble or needing help, but not just to chew the fat and, and you know, just kind of socialize with. So I think we see them in this role. Police see themselves in this role, sort of uh, when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail. And I, I think, we again, that comes down to changing the culture, understanding that, yes, the taxpayer is, is your customer or is your boss, really. They are paying for your service. Mm-hmm. And we have to ingrain that within starting at the recruit level, that you're not there to walk around and say, who's going to break my law? You're there saying, how can I help? Right. More of a customer service, community relations. And that is going to take you know, a major shift in the culture of police work. And, and as you said, because you know firsthand, that's going to take a major shift. Is that something, does that mean that training has to be completely reconceptualized? How, um, and, and continual training as well? Well, I think continual training is important. But yes, you start, you start with the police academy. And I don't think it has to be reconceptualized because, as you pointed out, this is not a new concept. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it needs to be reemphasized and remind everybody, this is how you have to act as an officer. You're not there to be a tough guy. You're not there to abuse people. You're there to serve the public. And at times that may require the use of force or the use of deadly force, but not, not to push people around, not to exercise your authority over them. So that starts in the academy. But then you are right about having to continue it because in my social media posts, I've got a number of questions from people saying, is this burnout by police Mm -hmm. is this compassion burnout have they lost the ability to be compassionate and i think that is true i remember just two years into into being a police officer i went back to an in-service and we discussed burnout and some of us said wow we've only been on the job two years and we're starting to get signs of that because you are dealing with people complaining every day well, I mean, I and, just, you know, a lot of times, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I just think about burnout for civilian jobs where our lives aren't on the line. I can't even imagine, you know, doing what police officers do. I mean, it seems as though there definitely needs to be more support in terms of mental and emotional support and more recovery time. Absolutely. And I think that has certainly come a long way in the years since I stepped out as a police officer 40 years ago, if you can believe that. Uh, even then, we had a police psychologist. And I can't imagine there's a police department of any size that doesn't have access to mental health for their police officers. 
But that has to be addressed in a way where the officer is comfortable getting help. Hmm. One, again, it goes to culture. No one likes to admit they're, they're weak in any way, and that's how they see it, especially in the police culture. And two, in a way that they feel is not going to come back and hurt their career. Now they can't get promoted. Now they can't get a certain position because they sought uh, some mental health help. So that has to be tread lightly and delicately, but it has to be available and it has to be promoted and officers have to be willing to use it. Uh, former police officer and FBI agent Michael Tabman, he's also an author and also a national speaker. Michael, can you uh, willing to take a uh, listener call right now? Absolutely. Okay. Hey, Ron, it's G. You're, on, you're live on the air. What's your question for uh, Michael? Yeah, hey, Michael, I heard the attorney, um, attorney general on earlier. One of the things that's being discussed around the country is that police should uh, uh, be licensed. Because what they're finding that is uh, the police are committing some of these you know, horrific acts. Even if they get fired, they go and they can get a job somewhere else, unlike a doctor, unlike a, a lawyer. But the thing is, when you talk about culture, Without any kind of monetary cost, it doesn't change. Because, and I'll say this real quick. I remember the whole thing with um, drinking and driving. That culture changed when it costed your license and things like that. So if, if there's no cost to these police, observe, they will continue to do it. I, so I just want to find out what's your opinion on licensing them. Thank you. Thank you, Ron, for your question. Michael, did you uh, hear Ron's question there? I did. It was an excellent question. Thank you, Ron. I think Ron is talking about uh, the database, a national database that's been proposed, whereby if an officer is uh, dismissed uh, for, for cause, that they can then, they, the new uh, employer, the new police department, so he, he's fired on police department A. Police department A has to enter that into a database. So then when Officer Tabman applies to police department B, they can run that name in the database and see that he was dismissed from that department and then maybe not be eligible for rehire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I say that is certainly if someone's been dismissed and for evidence of abuse of power, excessive force, uh, taking gratuities, they might obviously not be eligible. But the policing power still rests within the state. And that's for our Constitution. And states and small towns that have trouble hiring police officers may want to have some leniency and say, well, he was dismissed for something that we don't feel was a major violation or we feel he could be rehabilitated or we don't feel the evidence warranted his dismissal because keep in mind some of this is political and we know that. So I, I don't think it'll be foolproof, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And from most of the major city police chiefs, I've heard on the news, they all seem to support that idea. Michael, can you hang on for just like two minutes here with me? Because I wanted to ask you about um, the immediate reforms that the mayor here in Chicago wants to complete in 90 days. And I want to see, I want you to answer how reasonable that might be. Do you mind hanging on? Can you? I don't mind. Okay. All right. A lot more with uh, Michael Tabman. He is a former police officer and an FBI agent. And uh, I also want to make sure that he tells you what books he's written too, because they're a good read. All that coming up. Let's continue our conversation with former police officer and FBI agent Michael Tabman. Um, he's also an author and a national speaker. And if you have a question for him, call 312-981-7200. We'll try to get your question in. So, Michael, here in Chicago, the mayor has basically put out uh, reforms that she wants to have happen. Um, she's hoping to enact enact measures within 90 days, including um, 
police reform for training. And part of that training includes bringing the community into the police academy as teachers. So officers would receive training from members of the community, um, history of the neighborhoods where they, they'll serve. And um, so that way they can understand the history of the, the people living in the neighborhood that they'll be serving and protecting. Do you think that that is realistic? Do you think that's uh, something that can actually be uh, part of reform? Yes, I think they can be part of reform, and I think it sounds like a great idea. Bring us some in the community and let them, again, speak about the history, speak about their culture. Uh, let them know things that have happened in the past that officers have done that have either appeared offensive or threatening, even though the officer may, may not have meant it, and have that interaction. I know from my work uh, when I was a special, so happens I was a special agent in charge of the Minneapolis office. Mm-hmm. Um, I reported about 15 years ago, oh, it was wow. quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a long time ago. But uh, you know, I, we were big on the Citizens Academy, which I think you may have heard of, where we bring citizens in once a week for X number of weeks, and we present to them what we do. And, of course, they would always give us feedback. And it was a great opportunity to get to know the leaders in the community. This was often, you know, business leaders, not not the average person, unfortunately. But it helped us establish sort of that presence there on a personal level. And I think in, in a police academy environment, you know, citizens academy environment, offering that and in reverse, having these citizens come into the police academy, I think we start great dialogue and really go a long way to improving community relations. That's a good point in terms of uh, cultural differences that you experienced as well. Some, something else that the mayor also mentioned that she hopes to enact is sort of uh, a mandated crisis intervention and procedural justice training for all officers. And uh, I think we've heard so much about de-escalation, like providing real tools for officers. Do you think that currently there's enough training in de-escalation or no? Well, interestingly, I was involved in training police officers in crisis intervention uh, when I was a student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. So, again, that concept is not a new one. And I remember uh, working with that through our police academy and through the FBI academy. But clearly, from what we see unfolding in front of us, there has not been enough training in crisis intervention, which in of itself includes de-escalation. It's how to get in there and bring the temperature down and not have to resort to physical force to resolve the situation. So yes, we need more training in that, and I think we have to develop better expertise. And with that crisis intervention training, officers have to have the resources to make referrals. And I've heard you know, some of these uh, suggestions, and look mostly at the Minneapolis board, because they're the ones that are sort of the progenitors of this idea, mm-hmm. and they talk about uh, mental health. Uh, issues, and do we need police officers responding to mental health issues? Mm-hmm. When, when I was a young officer, I remember we had to serve what we called at the time mental petitions. I would imagine that offensive term is no longer used, but that's what we called them then. But we had to bring people into custody. Now, I could tell you it was a very unpleasant thing to do. None of us wanted to do it. And if you took that off the hands of the police, they'd probably appreciate that. But comes the issue is those things often turn violent. Very few people want to be taken into custody, and that's sort of when they break bad. So who is going to do that? Can you really do that without a trained armed officer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, interesting that you say that because, um, you know, we're talking about sort of, and you've mentioned this, longstanding police culture and that changing. And obviously de-escalation is something that's already being taught. But what about it isn't making it through? And I think that's what you're speaking to, too. 
Right. That's the question. And, you know, if I was to take over a police department now and they said reform it for us to happen, uh, there are several things I would look at. And one of the things I would look at is the training in the academy, as you talked about, the in-service training. And then I would take a look at the culture of this police department. Mm-hmm. Is this something where managers, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains are encouraging de-escalation and not giving a pat on the back for every time you whack someone with a nightstick? We have to see what is being enforced in the locker room more so than what's written on the paper. Hmm, Michael, I'm just curious, as you've been watching news footage, and of course there's plenty of news footage of protesters, um, whether they're peaceful, whether they're uh, violent protesters uh, coming up against police officers, what are some of the things that you've been seeing that, you know, you feel like, wow, you know, that shouldn't be happening or, or, or situations that maybe we as, you know, consumers of news are seeing that maybe we don't understand because we're not familiar with the situation. Right. I am a great believer that in situations like the Floyd family or any family who's been victimized by police violence, excessive use of force, lethal force, when they get together with the community and they want to have a protest, a demonstration, their intent is completely peaceful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The problem that exists is, and we know this for sure, is there are professional instigators, people who travel to come to these things so they know they could generate looting and create opportunities for themselves. There are people who travel to areas where there's going to be natural disasters and they know there's going to be evacuations and little, if any, police presence. They take advantage of that. And it doesn't take much, even in the most peaceful demonstration, it just takes a tiny spark because of all the emotion, to turn it violent. It doesn't take much. And so I want people to realize that, one, the intent is usually usually almost exclusively peaceful, but there are those who take advantage of the emotions for their own gain and light that spark. But also something else. The police have to be on guard. They have to be ready, because then we complain when they don't contain these riots, which could spin out of control easily. So at times when we see a demonstration, if we see officers lined up on the side and they're wearing protective helmets or shields, it's not meant to and it shouldn't be used to intimidate or antagonize a situation. It's used for their protection and to be ready to respond should something spin out of control. And as long as they behave accordingly, there's nothing wrong with them being prepared. We shouldn't interpret that to be as antagonistic as some people, I think, believe it is. It's such a different uh, image, I think, when we do see it on the news from sort of police in full-out riot gear versus the images of um, maybe in smaller cities, uh, depending upon which city, where the you know police officers are walking or kneeling with protesters. Right, and I think those officers, especially the commanders and chiefs who made that gesture, that was that was awesome. That was a great thing to do, and they mm-hmm. should walk with them. If they can, again, we're talking about community policing, understand their position, understand their right to protest and have their voice heard. As we've often heard said, you know, protest is the voice of the unheard. But that doesn't mean, again, that we shouldn't be standing by ready to react, again, not to antagonize. For example, let's look at what happened in Washington, D.C. prior to the president's photo op and i don't want to get political on this right but yeah. i remember please don't watching <laughs> yeah i won't but i have to call it what it is i remember watching the demonstration at least on television and at least from the that perspective there's obviously things mm-hmm. that you know the viewer may not have seen but i saw the protesters standing behind the barricade where they were supposed to be and i've always been one to say 
no matter what, do not get in the face of a police officer. And you see those pictures. Right. People getting right up in their face. They're acting aggressively. That's going to put a, a police officer in fear, and it's, it's going to maybe elicit some sort of response. But take this conversely now. If you remember that moment where the police moved forward mm-hmm. uh, to the barricade, got right in their face, and I wasn't expecting the tear gas or the non-tear gas, but I wasn't expecting that. But I said to myself, oh, no, this is going to evoke a response somewhere and a confrontation is inevitable. It's all in sort of the mannerisms and the how you behave. So let's talk a little bit more. Um, we're speaking with Michael Tabman. He's a he's a national speaker. He's an author. He's a former FBI agent, former police officer, hostage negotiator. Um, he knows this firsthand, which is why we're grateful to have you on the show with us tonight. Um, we're talking a little bit about this defund uh, the police movement, which, you know, realistically, in terms of... Um, making it applicable in a real way means reallocating funding that goes to police to other other um, organizations um, you know is is there a how how would that could you imagine it could it, you imagine um, being able to all the situations that police get called for whether they're like frivolous um, or life and death situations where people feel that their life is in danger um, would will there be a way to differentiate what situation is which, or would you see that the dispatch would have to then send, let's say, for example, a police officer, a social worker, and maybe another type of professional, uh, a psychologist, to when when they get a call for help? I guess is what I'm asking. Right, right. And, I, and that's why I wish they they whoever they are, is or are with defund use a different term, mm-hmm. use reform. Okay. Uh, we're not going to defund. We're not going to put the police departments out of business. It's not realistic. Uh, I, I, again, I, sit, I look at some of the recommendations uh, on the Internet that the council uh, from Minneapolis put out. They think about unarmed officers downtown, sort of officer-friendly. Well, that's a great concept until there's an armed robbery or an active shooter. Who's going in? And so to get to your question about the dispatcher, I think it's a great concept, but in reality— we're not going to have psychologists, mental health professionals sitting in the precinct waiting to get called out. They may be on call, ready to go when they need them. So who is the most likely person and the most available person at 3 in the morning to respond to a call? Who's already on the street in their car able to answer? That's going to be your police officer. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going into an unknown situation. And, and even though most confrontations are not violent, we know that we walk into someone's home into a, a, a civil dispute. You know, uh, as I said, you know, serving a process for a commitment. These are really dangerous situations, and you're not going to want anyone other than an armed, trained police officer go in there. If they go in and they assess it as, hey, they don't really need me, uh, they need more of, you know, a crisis manager, a mental health professional, great. That's great. The officer would rather get back on the street and have uh, that mental health professional called out and respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you don't see. I don't. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get away from police response. Right, being the first responder, that whole first responder scenario. In terms of, um, in terms of, we were talking about reform, and and you think it should be police reform and not defund the police. Um, Should there be tighter screening for who gets to go to police academy? Absolutely. Uh, We see these bad apples get through. We already talked about officers being disciplined and then rehired, but. When I went through the uh, police selection process, again, we're talking 40 years ago, there was a very stringent 
psychological assessment of me. I took the Rorschach test and, and was interviewed and asked all sorts of questions. So that's been there for a long time. Whether or not it needs to be improved, perhaps. Uh, but we also use a probationary officer or probationary agent period to assess somebody, watch how they handle, and, and they can be dismissed uh, without cause during that time. If they just, if the management doesn't feel they're, they're cut out for this kind of work. But then once you get in there with protections, we have to have this ongoing assessment. And this is where managers need to be trained, uh, need to recognize the signs of trouble. Uh, I, I believe an officer is under stress. I believe the officer is having burnout. They're bringing their problems from home to the job. I think it's going to result in, you know, possibly a, unnecessary violent confrontation and they should have the tools to make that assessment and they should have the authority to make a referral for mental health services. I think there's probably a resistance to do that. Nobody wants to be put in that position, but I think what we see unfolding uh, is going to require that. But I also want to point out that, you know, I, I being my law enforcement career, I, I tend to mm-hmm. always give the police the benefit of the doubt. That's my bias. I know that. And I do try to stand up for all the officers out there who are doing a really good professional job. And when we look at these incidents, and they're disturbing, I, there's no law enforcement officer I know who is defending Officer Chauvin. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my, my reaction when I saw uh, down in South Carolina, that shooting, I mean, Mr. Scott, it, it was insanity. I didn't know what this officer was thinking. But you've heard the number 800,000 kicked around a lot, the estimated number of police officers that are out there. And if you multiply that by the number of man hours spent every day interacting with the public, whether it's service, whether it's mm-hmm. crime fighting, whether it is a violent confrontation where there's an arrest being made, these are still isolated incidents. Right. Well, Michael, on that note, I've got to let you go because I'm out of time. Michael Tabman, he's also the author of Midnight Sin and Bad Intent. So a little earlier, we were talking with a former police officer and FBI agent and we were talking about defund the police, um, that movement that you've been hearing a lot about. And we're going to check in with a national reporter with the Washington Post, Derek Hawkins. And we just missed him. So we're going to uh, get him in, talk to him right now. Um, so joining us is Derek Hawkins. Hi, Derek. How are you? Hi, uh, just fine, you. Great to be here. Oh, thanks so much for being with us. I know that you are swamped, so we appreciate your time right now. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, we talked a bit with a, a former police officer and FBI agent earlier, sort of about like the practical ways in which, you know, defund the police could actually happen or in terms of reallocating some of those resources of what that would look like. But can you just sort of update us? Because I think when initially folks hear defund the police, it just seems incredibly radical and downright frightening to a lot of folks. Yeah, and that's understandable, I think, if uh, you're not familiar with this uh, this movement or this push. So it's, you know, a lot of people here defund the police, and I think they assume abolish the police or something like that. And in reality, this isn't, you know, a, a doctrine. Um, it's just a set of kind of general principles that advocates and uh, activists have been promoting for a long time. It's mostly, you know, for, for years, decades even, it was more, it was mostly something that was discussed in you know, left-leaning activist circles, uh, academic circles. And now it's really been thrust in the mainstream and people are taking it seriously. And what it means is 
as you said, reallocating funds uh, that were spent on policing, reducing the reliance on, uh, you know, patrol officers and uh, different, you know, things like gang units and drug units and that sort of thing, and um, reinvesting them in communities that have been historically underserved, mostly uh, black communities here. And, um, you know, if you listen to uh, uh, Alicia Garza, the um, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. co-founder, defined it really nicely over the weekend. She said, um, and, and I'm just kind of uh, quoting from memory here, but, uh, you know, when, when you talk about defunding the police, it means investing the resources that we were spending on police in communities in need. You know, she said, um, you know, we want increased funding for education. We want increased funding for health care, housing, quality of life. She said police uh, communities are over-policed. They're over-surveilled. So that's really what's going on here. And, um, you know, so it's it's a broad call. And um, while, you know, defunding might kind of signify one thing for some people, it really means a, a broader things. And there's not even really a consensus definition, although the general, the general thrust of it is clear, I think. Speaking with National Breaking News reporter Derek Hawkins of the Washington Post. So, Derek, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, so forgive me if it's fine if you don't. But in terms of percentage-wise, is there an average of, you know, how much money generally in cities goes to the police versus other allocations? That's a great question. And, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary uh, city by city, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of need, obviously. But I, in, in Los Angeles, for example, I think it's substantial. Okay. I think it's, I mean, if you think about the United States government, about half of our half of our budget goes to defense spending. And uh, I think, you know, it's fair to say that in the past 20 years, certainly since 9-11, when um, municipalities have been incentivized to spend more money on law enforcement and homeland security, that they're spending a lot of money on that. So I'm not exactly sure mm-hmm. what the uh, percentage is, but I know in Los Angeles it's very big. Uh, a place like New York has a huge force. I mean, I think there's upward of 45,000 sworn officers on the New York uh, NYPD. So, you know, you can kind of uh, get a rough estimate uh, just by looking at the size of those police forces. Here in D.C., you know, we're only 600,000 or so people, and uh, I believe it's 5,400 sworn officers here. So, And that's a large, that's a very large force, one of the bigger ones in the country. We also have all kinds of different police forces, Capitol Police, Secret Service, military police, FBI, et cetera. So, you know, it's a heavily policed city. Cities are spending a lot of money on this one way or another. So if cities do decide to uh, start pulling from those budgets and putting that money elsewhere, they do have a lot to work with. It, of course, comes at the potential risk of uh, jeopardizing public safety. But this is an experiment that um, I think a lot of mayors and city councilors are now showing some willingness to consider at least. And of course, speaking of uh, experiment, that's what's happening right now in Minneapolis. Um, The latest article that you contributed to on the Washington Post is nine Minneapolis City Council members announced plans to disband the police department there. Um, What are some practical iterations of of what this would look like? For example, if other if other you know, types of, let's say, first responders are, are created, a mental health mm. person or a crisis manager rather than a police officer. How Won't the public have to be retrained or would a, would a public person be able to differentiate what requires a police officer versus a mental health person? Or I guess, how would it exactly work? 
Mm, it is a really it's a it's a tough problem because um, yeah, I think part of the uh, argument that people who favor defunding police make is that um, policing has expanded so much in the past forty years that police mm-hmm. have basically become social workers. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's a few generations. And uh, you're talking about people who were raised with that expectation, who grew up in communities uh, with that expectation. So I think you raise a really good point that it's um, it's a it's a full-blown reimagining that's going to take some reimagining on the part of the public, too. You know, and where do you draw the line between who's a law enforcement officer, who's, you know, a, some other city service officer, um, you know, does it all, uh, does all that kind of change mm-hmm. take place under the department? I know that in a city council week uh, meeting last week in Minneapolis, or maybe it was the week before, um, before they made this announcement, mm-hmm. uh, which admittedly was kind of, was a little vague. They said they were going to end uh, the department. They were taking intermediate steps hey, to end Derek, the department. Derek, do you have a, can you hold for another five minutes or no? Do you have to oh, go? Yeah, you fine. have work? Okay. I want to. I still want to continue this conversation, if you don't mind. We got. We got to do this first and uh, break for news, and then we'll talk more with you, if you don't mind holding on with us. Certainly, I, I can hang tight. Okay. Thank you so much. Continuing our conversation with national and breaking news reporter for the Washington Post, Derek Hawkins. And Derek, I'm so sorry I cut you off uh, mid-thought there, but you were talking sort of about the practical iterations and sort of that this is a grand experiment that's happening right now uh, in Minneapolis. It is. And you know what's interesting is the city councilors, um, or I think many of the city councilors who made this announcement the other day, uh, kind of rode in and were elected on um, with a mandate to, to reform. I don't know if they have envisioned doing this drastic of a, of a change, but right. back in 2017, they were asked um, during a bunch of candidates were asked during local elections uh, in a voter forum whether they can imagine a city without a police department. And a few of them said yes. And at the time, they were met with some, some real ridicule and, and pushback. Well, now most of those candidates are on the council, including the president, and uh, and several of them serve on the public safety committee. And so you can see, you know, how this started. And obviously, you know, Minneapolis has, uh, you know, a history of uh, some uh, high profile um, in custody law enforcement or uh, deaths of, of black men and women in uh, in law enforcement custody. So there's been there's been some rumbling about this for a while. There's been concerns about over policing and excessive force for a while. And uh, I just think it's interesting that, you know, the the city council was sort of galvanized for this earlier. And now, um, you know, we have this what seems like a watershed moment for not just policing reform, but a completely complete overhaul of the department. It sounds like Minneapolis is ready to be uh, is ready to kind of take the lead in this experiment. And um, from what I know, they have a veto proof majority if they want to move forward with this. There's 12, it's a 13 seat council. There's 12 people on it right now. One seat is vacated. Uh, so that would prevent the mayor from vetoing anything they want to do to disband or dismantle the department. So Derek, what's the alternative? Have they proposed what, who people will call when they're in uh, a dire situation or feel that they're, they're threatened or someone breaks into their house? I really don't know. Okay. Uh, and that's that's a question that's on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. And you know, you would you could imagine um I, I think I think it'd be hard for any city, no matter how radical the city council 
uh, no matter how willing its citizens to completely do away with uh, police. Right. But you can envision a situation where, you know, you start removing um, lethal weapons from officers. Uh, you put an emphasis on community policing. You train police in de-escalation. You have fewer patrol cops. You kind of dismantle the police bureaucracy a bit. There's something similar kind of is happening, a sort of prototype for this is happening in Camden, which uh, sort of dissolved its police department several years ago, but merged it with county police mm -hmm. and then did, from what I understand, some really uh, rigorous de-escalation training. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of an experiment that's still underway, and I think there are a lot of eyes on that. But this is something totally new. Uh, I think one, you know, obvious step that uh, a number of cities are considering, and I'm sure Minneapolis is, uh, this is on the table there as well, is taking away uh, school resource officers, for right. example. Oh, yes. So these are uniformed officers who have weapons who are policing schools. Um, you know, that's one place where things get shifted away. Um, so it will be really interesting to see, you know, the, the kind of bits and pieces that we have now about what they're planning. You know, they talked in a city council meeting um, last week about this, you know, whether they take action to the union contract, whether they use, you know, sort of civilian oversight um, to, to sort of steer policing in this in, in this new direction, whether they shift, just plain shift funds away. Uh, all eyes will be on Minneapolis for sure. What a time for you to be covering this story. I mean, you must just be... Uh, it's... It's not a complete picture. There's no alternative that they've really proposed. There's no real, like, practical, mm. tangible iterations that they have decided upon yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not clear it is a crazy time uh, to be covering this. I think, you know, I think back to uh, Ferguson. So I joined the Washington Post uh, the year after Ferguson mm -hmm. uh, and immediately started reporting on law enforcement. And we've seen... You know, we've seen pockets of this. We've seen, uh, you know, the uprising in Baltimore. Summer of 2016 feels very much like this summer uh, in some ways. You know, there were that was kind of where uh, Black Lives Matter really took off. Uh, there were nationwide protests that summer, some really high-profile police shootings, also the assassination of several officers. Um, very tense, but uh, there's something there's there's something really momentous happening right now, and I think the major difference is that this is taking place simultaneously all over the country, all over the world, mm -hmm. and that these massive protests have been sustained, uh, that people are still turning out, um, and that you're, you're really, you know, we'll see how far the action from officials really goes. You know, there's, mm -hmm. you know, this might not be the watershed moment for policy that some people are expecting, but there's no doubt that the public um, is seems to be behind this, or, or huge masses of people everywhere seem to be behind this uh, at the same time. And, it's, uh, and, it's a really fascinating time. And in Minneapolis, the public is supportive of what the city, the council members have decided? You know, I can't tell, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard to gauge public enthusiasm just mm -hmm. on crowd size. Right. Um, but uh, there's huge turnout there and again you have you do have some evidence that people are were willing to try something you know mm -hmm. otherwise i don't think they would have 
you know, elected a, a half dozen city councilors who said they were willing to completely reform the police department. Yeah. So there has to be a, a there there. Yeah, if, I, right, if I can say right. it that way. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, fascinating. Um, it, you, as you said, it's a grand experiment and everyone, all eyes will be on Minneapolis. And we can't thank you enough. We know how b- busy you are. Uh, Derek Hawkins, he's a national and breaking news reporter for the Washington Post. And the latest article that he contributed to is Defund the Police Gains Traction as Cities Seek to Respond to Demands for a Major Law Enforcement Shift. We hope, Derek, in the future you can come back and join us and update us and and lend us your, uh, you know, your thoughts and uh, your incredible journalism skills. Thanks so much for being with us. Anytime. Thank you so much. I'm glad to do it.